Connection is nice, but conversation is where human relationships thrive. On this episode, Cal Newport returns to the show to help us reclaim conversation. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 400. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Virtually every leader needs to dive in deep on great conversation, to have the intentionality to build relationships, to strengthen relationships, and be able to discover what's next for themselves, for the people that they have the privilege to influence, and of course, for the organization too. Today's guest has done some amazing work on helping people to be more effective and to utilize technology effectively and appropriately today, but also to not lose sight of the human element. I am so glad to welcome back to the show Cal Newport. Cal is a computer science professor at Georgetown University who studies the theory of distributed systems. In addition to his academic work, he writes about the intersection of technology and culture. His work has been published in over 20 languages and has been featured in many major publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, Washington Post, and The Economist. He's the author of six books, including Deep Work, which he spoke to us about on his last appearance, and most recently, the New York Times bestseller, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Cal, it's so glad to have you back on the show. Well, Dave, it's my pleasure. So this is a bit of a follow-up to your work on, on Deep Work, and I hear the phrase, Deep Work, from one of our listeners or Academy members, if not weekly, certainly regularly, in how to be more effective. So thank you so much for helping us to continue to dive in on this. Where did this new book come from? Well, it was readers of Deep Work, actually, that helped nudge me in this direction. I mean, The way I think about Deep Work is that this book was about unintentional consequences of technology in the workplace. So it's about producing value, especially in the knowledge sector and, and how technology might take us away from that. One of the biggest pieces of feedback I would get, however, when I was on the road talking about deep work is, yeah, but what about our personal life? You know, what about what's going on with technology, the sort of unintentional consequences of technology on what we do outside of work? We're trying to, to build a sort of meaningful, satisfying, flourishing life. And I kept getting that feedback enough that I realized I have to look into this issue. And it turned out to be really interesting. And though it's related to the type of issues that I talk about in deep work, there's also a lot of forces there that are that are unique and require their, their own type of treatment. I did not think that I was going to ever have a conversation with a university professor about rock, paper, scissors, Cal, but we're about to have that conversation because you talk about rock, paper, scissors in this book, and it relates to a bit on conversation. What did you discover when you dived in on the rock, paper, scissors championship? Yeah, there turned out there used to be a national league, the RPS, the Rock, Paper, Scissors League. They <laughs> even amazing. were televised on one of the ESPNs. Now, it might have been like ESPN 25, but <laughs> they did. And I found these videos. It's great. They, I mean, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but they, they had these boxing rings with a podium in the middle. <laughs> and the competitors would come into the boxing ring, you know, wearing khaki pants and 
button up shirts and and they play rock, paper, scissors. But but the reason I wrote about it is it turns out you can be good at rock, paper, scissors, which is not what you expect. We think that it's something random, right? Like you're just putting something down. You have a one in three chance of, of winning or whatever. It's basically a coin flip. But it actually turns out that when they used to be a national league, the same players were consistently at the top of the rankings. Hmm. So whatever it was, they were good. And, and furthermore, you can find videos where professional kind of using air quotes here, <laughs> professional rock, paper, scissor players would go out on the street and do these promotional videos and just play against people, you know, they found in like hotel lobbies as one video and they would just destroy them like again and again, they would win. And so what's going on there and why is it relevant to technology? Well, what's going on is that professional rock player, scissor players are taking advantage of what turns out to be an incredibly sophisticated social processing machinery that's in our brain, that they're, they're essentially reading the mind of their opponent, trying to understand what their opponent's going to do based on what's happened in the past, and then trying to get one step ahead of it. And this is something that humans can do really well and almost no other animal can. And the reason I talk about that is that it helped lead to this broader point, which is our brain is incredibly sophisticated when it comes to navigating really subtle social dynamics. It's at the key to our species success. Why we've succeeded so much is in part because we can work together in groups. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do, but our brains are very good at reading the situation and reading the room and understanding connectionships and understanding relationships, which is all to say that we shouldn't then be surprised when after thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolving this brain to do these very subtle things, when we start messing around with human sociality with apps, they were dreamed up in dorm rooms 15 years ago. We shouldn't be surprised when that starts to cause problems. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating how subtle changes in interactions can have such a profound impact. And the distinction that is, is really fascinating is the complexity of thinking about something like rock, paper, scissors, and the folks who have become very effective at doing that well. And something like the like button on social media. In fact, one of the chapters in your book is titled Don't Click Like. <laughs> what's the what's the distinction between those as far as that complexity versus something like a like button? So all of this complex machinery that is precisely evolved in our brain has absolutely no recognition of what a like means. There, there's just nothing in our evolutionary past that prepares our complicated social machinery to understand that this little click, this little number next to a thumb icon is, is indicating, okay, someone approves of you. And so as far as our the social machinery is concerned, it doesn't see things like likes or comments or tags and photos. It doesn't really understand that as social connection, which is why you can think in our sort of modern social media world that you're incredibly social because you're, quote unquote, interacting with people all day long. You're clicking on likes, you're leaving comments, you're retweeting, you're tagging people in photos, you're putting on favorites, you're doing hearts, you're dropping emojis. It feels like you're being really, really social, but for a significant deep part of your social brain, it thinks that you're lonely because it doesn't recognize that as social interaction. It's not giving it the social nutrients that it's evolved to crave. My sense in looking at your research is that you know many of us have heard that social media makes us unhappy and it makes us feel lonely. But my sense is, though, it's a little more complex than that, is that it's not necessarily that social media directly makes us unhappy. It's, it's more of crowding out the time that we used to spend having more conversation. Am I, am I framing that right? 
Yeah, that's largely correct. It seems to be where the, the literature is converging on two negative aspects of social media. And that's a major one, which is not that what you're doing when you're on the screen is in itself bad, but yeah, the fact that it is crowding out the richer real world interaction that we actually need. So psychologists sometimes call this social snacking. You, you do the lightweight clicking likes and, and scrolling through feeds and saying, okay, I got my social fix, but that's taking the place of actually calling a friend or walking down the street to actually spend time with someone that you care about. And it's a lot less satisfying. So it leaves people more lonely. At the same time, there, there is some direct negative aspects that are also emerging, mainly when it comes to social comparison and cyberbullying. So there is this aspect that's become more clear in just the last year or two. There is some aspect of what you do directly on social media that's directly negative for your well-being, which is I'm comparing myself to these pictures that are carefully curated. Or if you're younger, there's some sort of social bullying going on. But I think for most people, especially not young people, but people who are a little bit older, that's the actual hidden negative effect, which is the social snacking on social media is not in itself bad, but it's keeping you away from the things that are very good. You cite the work of Sherry Turkle in your book, and you talk about the distinction she makes of connection versus conversation. Tell me more about that distinction. So connection is what she would call what you're doing when you're on a screen interacting with someone. So uh, a text message, a like, the photo tags, these type of things we've been talking about, she calls that connection and she contrasts it with conversation, which has a analog component. So if I'm talking to someone and I can hear their voice and they can hear my voice and we can adjust our modulation, our intonation, we can pick up on these subtle cues of, of pacing and affect, that's conversation. If I can see your face, if I can look at the way that the micro muscles are changing around your face, what those expressions convey about your current state, that's conversation. If I'm in your presence and I can actually see your whole body, see your whole body language and, and what that conveys, that's also conversation. And that's what our social brain has evolved to do really, really well. It's really complicated. It uses a lot of machinery and we're great at it. When you go to just digital text, so I'm just sending you a message on SMS or I'm just clicking on an icon under a social media post, you lose all those analog cues. And so Turkle's point, which I think is a really good one, and the research backs it up, is that these should be seen as two very distinct modes of interaction. Uh, it is to our peril when we think about them as being interchangeable. We think, well, maybe I'll go see my friend, or maybe I'll just leave a comment or send a text message. It's all kind of the same thing. When you start to mix it up, that is to our detriment. They're two very different things, and they give us two very different rewards. I'm thinking about what you've just said in the context of leadership and how we so much of what many of us are called to do these days is leading in the virtual world, right? Where someone is part of our team, or maybe we even report to someone that's in a different place. And a lot of those interactions are text-based these days. Either it's email, or it's a, or it's an instant message, or it's Slack, or something like that. I'm curious as you've brought this distinction into not only the work, but in people's personal lives. How have they started to think about? to have more conversation emerge and to not have those digital things crowd out as much? Well, I think it's a really important point. I think almost anyone who's in a leadership position, for example, who has a remote component to it can attest to this sensation where you're reading, let's say, an email 
and you really can't put your finger on the emotional affect. And you might be like, maybe this person's really mad at me, or maybe this person is really happy, and you can't you can't tell. And it could it could be confusing. What that's a symptom of is exactly what we've been talking about, which is we need this complex social processing part of our brain, which relies on analog cues, the back and forth of hearing a voice or seeing body language. It's a huge part of how we actually understand people, how we actually connect with people, how we actually coordinate with people to move towards a common goal. And so if you take conversation out of the picture, it becomes very difficult to be a leader. So it becomes very difficult in the professional context. Sherry Turkle writes about this, that young people in particular who grew up with a social media and text messaging culture are now having a very hard time in the workplace because they don't want to pick up the phone and they're uncomfortable being in the office with you. They want to do it from the emotional safety of texting or emails. But when you strip out all those complex analog nuances, it's very, very difficult to actually sustain coordination towards a common goal. It just, it festers, there's misunderstandings, there, there's hidden motives, and the whole thing falls apart pretty quickly. And so I think this research makes clear why this is happening. And I think it also emphasizes the importance of Connection should be seen, this is my opinion, but connection should be seen mainly as a useful logistical tool. Email is very important from a technical standpoint because it's very easy for me to coordinate with you or to send you information. Oh, here's when the meeting's going to be. You know, I can just I can click send, it gets to you. It's asynchronous. I know you'll see it. I can attach a file to it. I can ask you when you're going to be in town. That's all very, very useful, but it shouldn't really be seen as an important tool when it comes to actually trying to coordinate with people towards a common goal, to understand people, to try to put together strategy. That conversation versus connection distinction is something that I think is as crucial in leading an effective team as it is in trying to create a healthy social life outside of work. This is great. And it's bringing up so many questions for me. And one of the things that I'm wondering about is how to reclaim a bit of conversation. And so I'm, I'm curious, Cal, when you've done this more for yourself and you're, you're just masterful at doing this uh, in your life and work. And as you've seen other people engage with this, what has worked to reclaim a little bit of that conversation? Well, part of it is more semantic than it is strategic. So just like with my last work, Deep Work, half the value in that was actually just making a distinction between deep work and shallow work. And once you understood those were two different things that gave you two different goals, it really changed the way you thought about how you went about your business. Well, something similar happens when it comes to this distinction between conversation and connection. And if you can actually flip that switch in your mind so that you now think about connection is essentially for logistics and conversation is for any type of important interaction, planning, strategizing, or coordinating, that that's what actually counts when you want to actually get people on the same page, work towards a goal. Once you make that distinction, then it changes the whole way you think about things, the whole way that you plan things, the whole ways that you strategize, the whole way you think about your social life. So even before we get to the strategic, just making that semantic differentiation cemented into your mind, this notion that conversations where the real stuff happens, connection is convenience logistics, but that's it. That just changes the whole ways you think about it. Now, once you're thinking about that way, then you get hungry to say, how am I going to make sure I, I get all this conversation in because I need real conversation to get X, Y, and Z done. And in those cases, there's a lot of different things that can be useful. Like in the book, just to give you one example, I talk about standing office hours where there's essentially a regular time in which you are always available on the phone. And you can just tell people pretty easily, like, hey, if you ever want to chat that through or when you're ready to work on this or if you want to catch up, 
you can always reach me on the phone from this hour to this hour on these days. You know, something as simple as that is enough to reduce the friction to help make conversation more likely to happen. Do you find that there's a personal component of that as well? Of When you think about something like an office hours concept, how does that show up for people at home with family or with friends? So when it comes to your social life, I, I really push pretty hard in the book to think about only conversation as counting towards strengthening your relationships. And so if you look at your week and say, I have not been on the phone or in person with any of my friends or outside my immediate family all week, then you just have to think about it as a week where I've been very antisocial, regardless of what you're doing on social media, regardless of what was happening on text messages. Hmm. And so I've really been pushing that to people is that the type of relationships that give real value are relationships for which you're willing to sacrifice time, energy, and tension. I'm willing to, to put aside some of my time to actually go and see you. I'm willing to put aside some of my time to actually get on the phone and talk with you or to bring you something to be useful or to put together a coffee where we can get together. That if there's very little sacrifice of sort of time, energy, or attention, then you don't actually get much benefit out of it. So if you were just typing out a quick text message or leaving a comment on social media, not that that's bad in itself, but it doesn't actually give you much social nourishment. So I really try to push people towards focus on the important relationships and really take responsibility and sacrifice for them. And that's going to give you much more benefits than trying to maintain this, this complex web of weak tie connections with these little lightweight pings throughout your day. That's artificial. But going across the street to have coffee with the neighbor is something that we've, we've evolved to really get a lot out of. Yeah. And yet so many of us don't do it. As I'm reading your book, I just am struck by thinking about what life was like 30, 40 years ago when I was a kid and what life is like today as far as how we approach things culturally. And, and that's the other thing I was wondering about, and particularly for you, Cal, because so much of your work is working with students who are of the age of being you know, uh, digital natives and of being the folks you described who have really grown up very much in a digital world. When you bring this concept to them and others, what is it that you find works to invite other people to engage more in conversation too? Well, you know, for a lot of people, especially young people, they, they don't have as much of a standard to compare it against. So just, so just actually talking about what we crave as a species, to feel connected, to feel socially enmeshed in a group, to, to feel that sense of belonging and importance of validation, and bringing this message that the ingredients for that have been the same ingredients for millennia. That there's, there's no real mystery on what we need, right? What we need is strong connection with family, close friends, and community, relationships on which we're willing to sacrifice time, energy, and attention. That gives us an incredibly strong sense of belonging. It gives us a strong sense of purpose, gives us a strong sense of satisfaction, and that that hasn't changed. Social media, at least in its widespread use, is about 10 years old. The human, the human species has not evolved in 10 years to the point where we can now get what we need from icons with number counts next to them or ASCII text fluting back and forth you know, over a global internet. And so that's the way I, I tend to approach with young people is that there's something really, really valuable you could be getting and you're probably missing out on some of it. And it, it, it's been in our DNA for millennia and it's incredibly powerful and, and incredibly meaningful. And don't be distracted from it by some of these latest inventions, which are very, very recent and aren't going to be able to replace that. And I think that message resonates 
more than me talking about, well, here's what I think is bad or worthless about social media. You know, so talking about here's this great thing that, you know, your parents and your grandparents, your great grandparents all the way down have really leveraged to add meaning to their life. And you can have it too. You just need to learn a little bit more about it. Maybe it takes a little bit more discussion because there's these distractions from it, but it's really good. So it's about what you're missing, not what's bad about what you're doing instead. You're so engaged with the people who read your blog and follow your work. And it was really fascinating to learn how many people reached out to you when you put out this call, <laughs> just doing some kind of research on how people are approaching this in their personal lives. And I'm curious, as you've talked with your readers, many of whom who are very busy professionals, leaders like our audience, what are some of the insightful things you've discovered from them that they've taught you that's really it's been neat or, or a fun way to approach this? Well, something that I was surprised to learn was the degree for a lot of people to which a lot of the lightweight digital distraction is filling a void. So I'd had this model before of we have these things that are really important to us that we do, that they make our life good. And digital distraction is sort of distracting us from these. So if we can just get the distractions out of our life or, or tame them, we can immediately get back to the types of things that we know are more important. But what I learned when I worked with a lot of my readers to go through this transition towards a more minimalist digital lifestyle is that for a lot of people, it's unclear what they're going to go to when they take the lightweight distraction out of their life. That the ability to just glance at this glowing screen at any moment that they have boredom and escape from the things they don't want to confront, escape from their own thoughts, escape from the void of, I don't really know what I'm about or what I want to do with my time, that this has become really powerful use for these technologies. And so when you say, hey, why don't you, like I do in the book, why don't you step away for 30 days? That can be terrifying for a lot of people. And so I'm much more sympathetic now about the difficulty of figuring out this is what I want to do instead of just mindless swiping in every, in every minute, in every down minute, right? That that actually takes a lot of time, which is why in part I talk about a 30-day process for transitioning as opposed to just saying, hey, why don't we just take a weekend like you're cleaning out your closet and declutter your digital life? Why do I say spend 30 days? Is because I've learned a lot of people need that much time away from this noise just to figure out a tentative answer to the question of what I want to do instead. Oh, That's not an easy question. And finding those answers is something that requires time. Yeah, fascinating. What's the big struggle that you see for people when they engage on this and they're in day two, four, seven of that journey? So you, you might suspect that people's biggest issue when they, when they do this 30-day process where they step away from everything, you might suspect that the, the big issue is what they're missing, right? I mean, at least this is what I guessed, is that people would say during the first few days of this 30-day period, like, hey, I'm not in touch with my friends, I'm missing out, or I don't know what's going on in the world, or something like this. But that's actually not really the concern. It turns out when people step away from a lot of this behavior that they spend a lot of their time doing, they don't really miss it that much. It's, yeah, okay. They don't feel that socially disconnected. They don't feel like they're missing out on the world too much. It really is this other question of what should I be doing instead that's a little bit more terrifying. It's also vital. You have to answer it if yeah. you're if you're gonna live a life that you really that you really love. But people are often surprised by how little they miss things like Facebook during this process, and also surprised by how much they're at a loss to figure out what they should be doing instead. Oh, fascinating. When they're at that point. And it's an amazing distinction. What is it 
that helps people to take the first step to figure out what that thing is that should emerge in their lives that isn't there? So solitude's important for this. I mean, I, I tell people, okay, if you're gonna spend this 30 days away from all this noise, get comfortable with your own thoughts again. You know, go out there and walk and just think, okay, what, what do I really care about? What are my values? What do I actually like spending my time doing? That seems like an important first step. And then an important second step is experiment. All right, see if that's true. You know, sign up for something, you know, take on this hobby, invite people to do this thing. You know, actually get after your tentative answers to this question of what I should be doing with my time instead and start messing around with it and seeing what actually does seem to resonate or what's not. And so a mixture of solitude and experimental action seems to be the formula for success if you want to refigure out, this is what I want to do with my life outside of work. And there's an intentionality in that I hear you say too. It lines up. We've had Mike Irwin on the show before talking about solitude and Priya Parker talking about creating meaningful gatherings. And there's a sense of intention I hear in all of those of that we don't have to figure out when we're on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever social media platform we're on. We're being more reactive and less intentional, aren't we? Yeah. It fills the gap so you can avoid intentionality. And so digital minimalism flips that script and says, no, no, you need to put tech to work intentionally to serve things that you're really sure are really important in your life, as opposed to doing what people tend to do now, which is use tech as an escape from the reality that you don't really have a great intentional picture of this is what I actually want to be doing. Mm, wow. As people engage with this book, if you could wave the magic wand and have them come away with taking one action as a starting point, what would be the action you'd have people take? So what I, what I learned working on the book is that smaller steps by themselves can't add up to the solution in this case. That we're, we're awash in tips and tricks for taming your digital life that don't seem to work, or at least they just give you a, a temporary little boost and you go back to where you were before because the forces are so powerful. And so I've really come to believe that if you want to take control of your digital life and, and be more minimalistic about it, like I talk about, at some point, what you need to do is something like this 30-day rip the Band-Aid off transition, where you actually wipe the slate clean, you take everything off the phone, you unsign up for things, you reflect for 30 days, and then you rebuild your digital life, your personal digital life from scratch. But this time you do it with intention. Here's the things I'm going to use. Here's why I'm using them. Here's how I'm going to use them. And as far as I can tell, in, in all the different experiments I've run and hearing from all the different people who have worked on this and, and the readers who have tried the, these various processes, this somewhat extreme start from scratch, rip the bandaid off approach seems to be what works. And so that's the seed I try to plant in people's minds. There's things you can do to get in shape for that, to get more comfortable with it, to, to increase the probability that you'll succeed with it when you do it. But I want to plant a seed that if you're a little bit fed up, a little bit uneasy about the screen in your hand and how much it's taking your attention away from the things that you really care about, from the things that you know are important, at some point, you probably should do the Mary Kondo, clean the whole closet out and start from scratch. And it's not going to be easy, but that's what you should be building towards. Yeah. And I, I love that direction of, you know, not necessarily eliminating technology, but rebuilding it after 30 days intentionally of what's going to support me and really creating the intentional experience I want to create with my relationships. Cal, this work you've been working on now for many years, and especially with deep work and the, and the new book, and you've been talking with people about it and their experiences with it. 
I am curious, uh, because leaders are always learning and growing, as you've dived in on this work and as you've worked with readers and as you've worked with your students, what have you changed your mind on in the last few years on how to approach this uh, that's different than how you were approaching it previously? Well, when it, when it comes to, let's say, tech in people's personal lives, probably my, my earlier stance on this when I was in my pretty deep, deep work mode is just get these distractions out of here, right? <laughs> and get back to work, right? I don't understand why these things exist. And when I, I've come around to this sort of minimalist approach, which is about intention, not about this is good or this is bad, or not about this is all a waste of time. You need to get out of your life. Minimalism, which is something I think I've come to in the last two or three years on this topic, is much more about are you being intentional or are you letting this stuff just kind of take over? That's a pretty different conversation. So it's no longer about good tech and bad tech. It's about good approach to tech versus bad approach to tech. And I learned this working on this book. I mean, even the, even the, the tech that you might think is completely gratuitous, you're going to find a group out there for whom it's crucial to a flourishing life. Like it's really hard to find a completely bad tech, maybe TikTok. I still can't figure out why TikTok <laughs> needs to exist. Uh, but I mean, I talk in the book, for example, about learning from visual artists, that Instagram has become this huge democratizing force for visual art, because it used to be you had to live in one of three major cities if you were going to be an artist, because you have to constantly expose yourself to what's going on, like the latest innovations in art. That's the grist for creative insight. And so if you didn't live in Soho, you're kind of out of luck. But now on Instagram, artists post their work in progress. And now you can be in Bloomington and be exposing yourself to a regular series of really creative work and, do, and have that be the grist for you to do creative work. So if you're a visual artist, for example, like Instagram is this incredibly powerful thing that's at the core of living up to, to your deep values. And so that's definitely been a shift for me. I, I, I don't see this tech so much anymore in terms of good versus bad, but about are you putting it to work for things that matter or are you allowing it to distract you from figuring out what those things are? It's, uh, it's fascinating to hear you say that you've really influenced a lot of my thinking on how I engage with social media. And I've disengaged from a lot of social media since we last talked a couple of years ago. You know, I'm no longer have a Facebook account and some others. And yet, the network LinkedIn is a really wonderful place for our audience and making really meaningful connections in many cases. And in fact, I've doubled down on that in the last few years of spending even more time there. And it's really been wonderful for for our, our show and our audience and making connections. And so I, I think it's fascinating how you're framing that of like, you know, coming back to that intentionality, right? Of what's going to serve you in a way that really creates a meaningful experience with others. Yeah, which, which seems obvious, but it's easy to get away from. And it, it can often be quite powerful once you reconnect to that approach. And, you know, the digital minimalist I work with, they use technology to great advantage. It's just, they're very specific about it. They're looking at their screens a lot less. And when they do, they're getting huge wins out of it. And so they're not Luddites, but what they're doing also feels somehow fundamentally different than just the standard person with their nose buried in their phone at every minute. And that, I don't even want to call it a middle ground. It's like, it's a completely different area of the map in which they're playing, but it's one that really works. Cal Newport is the author of the bestseller, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Cal, thank you so much for your work. Well, thank you, Dave. I enjoyed it.
a number of related episodes to today's conversation with Cal. The first one is the last time Cal was on the show, episode 233, How to Make Deep Work Happen. In that conversation, Cal and I discussed his previous book, Deep Work, and how, as leaders, we really do need to create space to find time to make deep work happen and, of course, to be able to also uh, support and create environments where the people working in organizations can make that happen too. You can certainly read these books in isolation, but I think it's super powerful if you are taking and considering both models at once, both the professional and the personal. So if you found this conversation helpful, 233, a great place to go next. Also, a value will be episode 308, The Power of Solitude with Mike Irwin. You heard Cal talk about the importance of solitude as a starting point in transitioning to be a little bit more minimalist with digital technology. And Mike Irwin was on the show a while back talking about some key ways we can use that in our strategy as leaders. A very, I was going to say thoughtful conversation, also one that has influenced me in doing more of that since that episode aired. And in fact, Mike is profiled in Cal's book. So lots of connections there from previous conversations as well. So that's episode 308. Also, Helpful Tea will be episode 344, Have Conversations That Matter with Celeste Headley. That's a great model from Celeste on uh, once you've created the space for more of those conversations, how to actually engage in such a way that the conversations are more meaningful and rich. And so much of her work, I continue to come back to in so many of my conversations. And then finally, I mentioned Priya Parker in this conversation as well. She was on episode 395 teaching us how to create meaningful gatherings. If you are going to take that next step to begin to create a space for more of those real connections, getting a bit beyond the digital space, uh, there's so many wonderful, wonderful strategies, tips, and ideas from Priya in that conversation. Episode 395 is a great place to start, and uh, she's really an expert on creating meaningful gatherings. So uh, you can find all of those episodes on the Coaching for Leaders website. If you just go over to coachingforleaders.com, you can set up your free membership. It'll give you access to all of the past episodes since 2011. Also give you access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead, plus a ton of other resources, including access to my book notes and Cal's book, is among those now. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com to activate your free membership for all of that and the weekly leadership guide. And if this episode was useful to you, please pass it along to someone else who would benefit from this conversation. And a huge thank you to so many of you who share the show regularly. There's no greater compliment to my work than the trust you put in me to be of influence in your work and the work of others. Thanks so much and see you next week.